Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely phenomenal. Another week down, another week of work put in, another joyous week of lockdowns. Now, this is going to be released tomorrow, um, and I do believe our UK brethren have access to the gymnasiums the gymnasiums of old, if you remember them, Gary, you know, remember when we used to be able to frequent those places. And uh, that makes me happy that they're out there getting some fucking sick gains now. And uh, I hope it really works out well for them. And uh, if any of them need coaching, we're right here for you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's actually, it's good to see that they actually have a nice little like, you know, return to somewhat normality. Hopefully, our government will, you know, get the finger out a little bit and give us at least some sort of framework to be like, oh, this is what it's going to look like as we open up rather than what they're doing now and just kicking the can down the road and being like, yeah, we'll reassess at the end of uh, um, May, maybe, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. I understand like you can't have perfect predictions now. No one can, but at least give us a little, you know, framework of when the glorious gymnasium is going to open again. But anyway, Gary, how are you? Very good. I actually personally don't care too much about the gyms being open, but I want gyms to be open for my clients, basically. <laughs> because you're a home gym supremacist. Yeah, I'm a home gym supremacist. See, I've got gym equipment out the back, and I'm actually finding the routine of training at home quite nice, like not having to like go to the gym and stuff. Obviously, it's nice, but my day is just more efficient, you know, a bit more freedom. So that's nice. However, I do feel for my clients, um, even even the fact that, you know, I've only got like a barbell and a bench and stuff. It's not like you don't have a lap pull down, you know, all those leg extensions and cardio machines. It'd be nice to have that stuff. Uh, but yeah, obviously many people are, are finding it, it difficult to keep training at home when you just have a couple of dumbbells or a kettlebell or whatever. There's only, only so much you can do. So hopefully we'll get there soon. Yeah. See, this is it's it's okay for you because you're actually incredibly weak. Whereas people like me or no, I don't need heavyweights. Exactly right. People like me, I'm like, what I'm going to do? Fucking go from squatting five plates to doing bodyweight squats. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what I have been doing, but it's you know it's not not as effective as you would generally like. But anyway, look, that's enough about this situation. Was heavy lifting effective for you? No, actually, nothing is effective for me. I'm actually uh, a resistance training non-responder. So, you know, but I still like to enjoy the gym. As you are well aware, you know, half the battle is actually the enjoyment of the process. And if you're just, you know, not enjoying the process because it's just too fucking easy, um, you know, I like a bit of a challenge. But anyway, what are we talking about today, Gary? We're coming to the tail end of many discussions of obesity that we have had over the last few months, um, dating back to 2020. So basically all this year, we've basically just been discussing obesity and all related topics. And we're on to the point where we basically want to leave people with some, I guess, practical take-home points in that if you're listening to this as someone who, you know, has been heavier all their life, or you know someone who you're trying to help, we want to actually give you something that's useful. So we're going to talk about nutrition today primarily. So We've obviously spent a great deal of time discussing all of the variables that influence the development of obesity, um, the risks associated with obesity. We've discussed exercise and its role um, in people with obesity. 
But now we're really getting to the kind of cornerstone of what people think about when they think about obesity. And that is, of course, the role of uh, diet or nutrition generally. Okay, Um, And this is an area of where much debate lies, um, much of which is actually not really in accordance with the evidence either. So you'll have if you go into Easton's, for example, like how many different diet books will you see, all of which, you know, propose basically the same outcome from many different methods. And everyone suggests that their method is the one that's superior. And I think that what's interesting is that when you look at the research, um, like there's, there, I think it was just last year, there was a study published, I think in the B, BMJ, maybe it was the BJSM, I can't remember. Uh, but basically they were looking at all of the different uh, popular diets that people discuss and seeing and looking at the overall body of evidence to support their role in in uh, weight loss and people with obesity and basically it just didn't matter <laughs> it's just whatever people stick to is is effectively it and you see that time and time again and um, there's been some high profile studies over the years comparing um, uh, low carb versus low fat diets and meta-analyses of those respective studies and effectively what you see is that it doesn't really matter okay it, it tends to be the case that on average weight loss outcomes tend to be very similar between these different types of diets once they're standardized on the basis of of energy or, or calories so that's the first important thing that is just worth noting here is that we're not here to give you the best solution however there is also more nuance to that discussion because it's not enough to just say that oh well on average all of these diets are equal because um you don't know if you're the average response. And the average response is obviously a collation of all of the individual responses. So in those individual studies, what you'll see is that there may indeed be some people who uh, didn't do so great on the low-carb diet, and there might be some people who did fantastic on a low-carb diet. And that might you know, depend on uh, cultural tradition, for example, like in your country, what are the foods that are typically eaten, you know, and, and, and within that, what are your actual preferences? What are your dietary preferences? What foods do you like? What have you developed a, a habit? What habits have you developed over the years? For example, if you first got into fitness and you thought that low carb diets were the be all end all, you might've actually spent your whole nutrition career, so to speak, developing nice recipes, learning how to cook nice meals with that approach. And that might actually suit you better right now. So there's many different factors that go into um, determining, you know, what the best diet is for you as an individual. But I think as an entry point to this discussion, it is worth noting that there is no special recipe. There is nothing in, there's no special diet that's going to get you there, but there are some kind of key principles, obviously, first and foremost, being that related to energy balance. Okay. So that's coming back to the discussion of, of calories in calories out effectively. It's so simple, um, not easy, but simple. You literally just have to burn more calories uh, than you are taking in. And it, it almost sounds condescending at times. And I think that's why people can be resistant to that message sometimes because it it does sound so simple but the reality is that it's actually quite complex and if you've been listening to the obesity series all along you'll appreciate the role of the food environment um the role of uh, satiety mechanisms or lack thereof and the hijacking of them um through uh, food processing etc that make that achievement so incredibly challenging so i guess that's the introduction to to this discussion yeah, see, this is the thing as well with the with the diet. The actual discussion is incredibly easy, like you said. It's like you just need to eat less. And again, it, that's just 
<clears throat> that just sounds really condescending. It's like, yeah. just eat less, you know, or move more or some combination of the two of those things. And like, obviously that is the most condescending thing to say to someone that's like, oh, how should I fix my diet? And you just say, yeah. to them, like, yeah, just eat less and move more. You know, it's like, it's not really helpful. And unfortunately that is the actual solution. Now, as we've discussed in previous episodes, there is so much nuance to that, that it is almost you know, illegal to say, you know, it's like, oh, just eat more or sorry, eat less and move more. You know, it's like, that's, it doesn't like, yes, that is what we needs to happen. But like we've discussed previously, it's like the food environment makes that a little bit harder. The hijacking of like our neurobiology makes that a little bit harder for individuals. Like the, the entire situation, like the, the deck is stacked against them basically, you know? So it's like, yeah, okay. It's incredibly easy from a theoretical standpoint it's like this is just thermodynamics you're not getting around it this is one of the laws that governs our entire universe you know like that's it's it's there you know like you can't get around it however it's like you actually have to put processes habits systems environments in place to actually make it possible for you to actually hit those targets whatever it is you know eat less move more right and again that's that's why we did an entire series on this stuff, right? However, it's not actually the stuff we're going to talk about today because some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is more mechanistic in places, a bit more, we'll call it a nuanced in places. However, it all ultimately comes back down to that fundamental precept of you need to eat less and move more. And I'd love if there was some secret that we had, like Gary said there, like you go into a bookstore there's going to be hundreds, thousands of books on this stuff, telling their secret diet or their secret tips or secret recipes, their secret, whatever it is. And in reality, it's like, they're just giving you this tool to make you eat less and move more, you know, like, yeah, okay. You might align better with that specific diet. Like maybe you like low carb dieting, maybe you like a, an ancestral approach. Like that's, you're like, Oh, I really jives well that narrative. I really like it. You know, like whatever it is, maybe you like that approach. That's perfectly fine. But the fundamentals of that diet are still working through thermodynamics. Right. And then the other thing, and you, you touched on it there as well, is like the thing that makes this most hard is not necessarily that we'll call it psychological component where like you jive well with a diet you're like oh i like to look at this or i think that would fit in with my lifestyle yes that's a huge part of it but and we'll get into some of these things later on in the episode there are obviously differences in how each of us responds to the diet like we're all genetically unique right Um, and this is one of those things where everyone wants to be unique like everyone's like oh i want to i'm a unique you know snowflake i'm i'm unique our society because we are an individualistic society like it really puts value on uniqueness however as soon as you tell someone you're unique with the diet and you're going to have to figure things out for you for your biology for your uniqueness all of a sudden they're like oh i wish there was just a cookie cutter approach you know and it's like you can't have the best of both worlds you can't be unique and then have generic work for you you know it's like you can't then be generic and expect like unique approaches to be the one you know it's like you can't get both of these things right so that's something to to bear in mind so for you like gary said there might be a case where you know lower carb is actually better for you you know or higher carb or lower fat or higher fat or whatever and this again makes it incredibly hard for an individual to navigate the situation because you basically have to play around with all the variables however it still all has to be done under the framework of you need to eat less and move more right so keep that in mind throughout this whole discussion and 
yeah, let's get into it, Gary. What's your first point of call? What would you like to discuss? I guess just touching briefly on on the fact that it is actually uh, calories in, calories out. I just want to just want to elaborate just a little bit because I think sometimes what can happen in the discussion as it relates to obesity is that because someone has come to the point of you know carrying uh, quite a bit of excess body fat and as per our previous discussions, there are very real changes in physiology associated with that and that you might refer to as pathophysiology because it can be described as a disease state, um, that dietary approaches have to be massively different, okay? So you'll hear discussions related to hormones, for example. People will say, um, oh no, it's just your hormones that you need to work on. And the thing is, there's almost always a grain of truth in um, in claims that are incorrect within the fitness industry. And there's a grain of truth here because there are indeed um, some deranged hormonal states, you could say, associated with obesity, for example, insulin resistance. Um, you might have someone that also has uh, hypothyroidism, let's say, associated with obesity, or they could have obesity um, secondary to Cushing's disease, okay? Um, so th there's many different or Cushing syndrome. And um, there's many different uh, hormonal states that could potentially be contributing to obesity or be the manifestation or be the a result of um, that obese state. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that these laws no longer apply. Because what you actually see is that, for example, if someone does have hypothyroidism, let's say, um, so they don't have enough thyroid hormone for whatever reason, and that's led to them um, developing obesity at a faster rate, they still have to eat less calories than they burn. They just happen to be burning less calories because of that thyroid hormone and there's effects in satiety, et cetera. So any change in um, a hormonal state uh, that may contribute to obesity is still within the parameters of energy balance. It's just one of the, the underlying variables that modifies it, okay? So that's something that's really important to get. And it is the case that diet can um, improve some of the hormonal states associated with obesity. For example, insulin resistance, as someone begins to uh, lose body fat, they generally become more sensitive uh, to insulin. However, despite the fact that someone might be insulin resistant, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they won't lose weight, okay? Um, yes, there are changes absolutely in um, metabolic processes um, because of insulin resistance. And we've discussed some of those as it related to, um, we discussed in relation to hypertension, we discussed it in relation to um, cardiovascular disease risk and obesity pathophysiology generally, and diabetes in particular, of course. Um, that still begins to uh, reduce itself uh, as you begin to, to lose weight. And even as you initiate uh, the, the dietary process and make improvements in your diet, like eating more fiber, eating more protein, et cetera, uh, eating in a calorie deficit, all those things also have effects on, on calorie uh, or on insulin sensitivity alongside the weight loss itself. So these things improve as a result of uh, being in an energy deficit, but it's not necessarily the case that the hormonal uh, state has to be fixed first. Of course, there are complexities there. If someone has developed full-on type 2 diabetes, they might indeed need medication uh, for that. But I think overall, just understanding that anything that someone discusses in relation to hormones, that still exists within the framework of calories in, calories out. Because when we talk about calories in, calories out, 
we're talking about that as a very dynamic equation because there's things that can absolutely vary your calories in um in both directions in the sense that you may have malabsorption let's say um associated with some sort of gastrointestinal disease um so that could reduce the amount of calories you're getting in and that's why people with some diseases like that will uh, lose weight at a faster rate um or you could have things that are affecting um your satiety response so you're no longer getting the same sense of fullness or reward from feeding we discussed that in relation to the neurobiology of obesity we said there can be changes in terms of uh the reward processing from a given meal or in the postprandial period after a meal, that's two different people um, might have uh, different levels of reward or desire for food independent of energy intake. All of those things can also affect energy and that could increase your energy in because clearly you're not getting the same response from the same um, food stimulus. So um, that's one example. And then energy out, obviously, there's considerable differences. We, we've discussed many times in the podcast, uh, the concept of non-exercise activity thermogenesis, for example. Um, so when people are in an energy deficit, they have different uh, levels of susceptibility to becoming sedentary. So for example, one person might um, start eating less and they'll continue the normal activity habits. They'll continue sweating as normal. They do their activities of daily living as, living as normal. Whereas another individual, um, and you'll see this quite often, often, they'll actually find that they become a bit more sluggish almost immediately and their body's not as warm anymore and they stop sweating as much and um, they don't feel like going for a walk anymore as an activity. They'd rather lie on the couch. And all of these things then reduce the amount of energy uh, that's going out. Uh, so you can see that when we start to look at that energy balance equation, it's not just food and exercise. It's the whole underlying physiology, the neurobiological mechanisms, the hormonal mechanisms. They're all tied in within that framework. And that's why we still use it. Although it sounds so simple when we say just eat less, you got to eat less and move more. It's the truth, but there's a lot of uh, grounding substance underneath there that's not always so clear um, when you're just at the surface. Yeah, and this is one of those things as well where it's like, like if you think the issue with you losing weight is a hormonal issue, go to a doctor. Like literally go to a doctor. That's simple, right? And what I mean by that is like, you can't just say, oh, it's my thyroid. That's the issue. If you literally have never got your thyroid measured, like you don't just, you don't just guess at that. You know, it's like, go to a doctor, get that tested. If there's an issue, the doctor will come up with a treatment modality to help you with that, right? Now, again, like Gary was saying, there is, a continuum with that as well. Like you might have these, well, we call them issues secondary to being obese, or you might have them that they occurred, well, say genetically, whatever that led to your obesity. However, it is still encompassed within the overall framework of calories in calories out, you know, like if it's affecting your metabolism in some way, again, we'll use thyroid because it's a, a classic example. If it's, a, if you have a like hyperthyroid, like you're over secreting it, say, right? Like, you're now probably burning more calories throughout the day and it's probably going to keep you thinner, right? Cause you're going to move more. You're going to be like, you know, doing all that kind of stuff that, you know, thyroid does. Right. And then conversely, again, if you've lower thyroid output, you're going to be moving less, you're going to be colder, blah, blah, blah. We all know the fucking generic hypothyroid symptoms because it's ever present in the media. Right. So obviously this is something that is of concern. However, it still falls into the framework. Like if you have hypothyroid, like, you still need to eat less and move more. Is it more difficult for you? Oh, for sure, right? But that's the the issue. It's not the fact that like thermodynamics is broken. It's the fact that 
you know, your thyroid isn't doing its job the way you want it to. And that's making this other stuff that you have to deal with harder. So again, go to a doctor, get them to come up with a treatment plan for you, right? Don't just think, oh, I have a sluggish thyroid. That's the issue. I, I just can't lose weight as a result. You know, if that is the issue, you need to go to a doctor, get that diagnosed, and then they will come up with a treatment plan to help you with that. Right? It's like, you don't just get to guess at this, right? So that's the first thing. But also in the general population, the general uh, discussion of hormones as they relate to diet, like it, it, the, the actual effects get so overblown in terms of like these different things and like whether it's like high testosterone and muscle building or you know low testosterone muscle building and like first of all endocrinology is incredibly nuanced and complex and it's not just a case of like oh it's uh one of these hormones is high and as a result you get all these other effects it's like no there's a whole fucking cascade that is involved with this stuff and there's so many like we'll call them off-target effects in terms of like they're off-target to what you think is the relevant stuff but it's actually you know it is occurring right but the reason we put all this over emphasis on hormonal stuff even though it it isn't isn't that like the magnitude of effect is actually quite low the reason we put so much stock in it is because there are people out there that actually supplement with these hormones and they see massive uh benefits from them you know first of all most of them take it in massive quantities. For example, we'll say steroids, you know, like uh, anabolic steroids, you know, maybe you take testosterone and you're going to see a great effect from that when you take 600 milligrams of testosterone per week, right? Of course, you're going to see that when a, a natural male at their peak is doing like what, seven milligrams per day excreting it, right? Now, obviously that 600 milligrams has a, an ester weight and stuff. So it's not exactly the same, but you know what I'm saying? It's like you are getting orders of magnitude higher, like a replacement dose, a hormone replacement therapy is like what, 125 milligrams per week, somewhere around there, depending on the individual, et cetera. Right. And um, so like you're getting orders of magnitude, greater effect from this. So of course they're going to think, oh, well, if this individual has a difference of like 200 uh, milligrams or nanograms per deciliter in their fucking measurement, and um, sorry, I always go American units. Sorry about that, Gary. Um, but of course, they're going to be like, oh, there's going to be a huge difference in that. When in reality, it's like, no, nah, there, there really isn't that big of a difference. Like, yeah, there might be if it's a difference between 200 and 400 or you're on the low end and then you're in the in-range end. Like, yeah, you're probably going to notice a difference then. But if you're in the, the normal range, it's you know it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter now obviously again like there's nuance to that like yeah. you could be at the fucking high end and still have like low testosterone symptoms you might be over too bound with fucking sex hormone binding globulin etc like there's obviously again incredibly nuanced right but the fact of the matter is that there are individuals out there that supplement exogenous hormones and as a result they think these are more effective than they actually are when we're talking about an actual human body for example the best example in my mind anyway is like growth hormone like you talk to a bodybuilder they'll tell you growth hormone is an absolute phenomenal drug really beneficial for adding on size blah 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 if you were to take growth hormone right without actually taking anabolic steroids fuck all does fuck all right now that's not completely true however the actual effect is so minuscule right but if you take growth hormone and you're taking like androgenic steroids or anabolic androgenic anabolic steroid anabolic androgenic whichever way it is aas right um you're going to see a phenomenal effect from it not all the time but in most cases right because the two of them are synergistic like you get a one plus one equals three effect rather than a one plus one equals two, right? So of course these individuals are going to be like, oh, it's growth hormone. I started taking growth hormone and 
fuck me my fat loss just accelerated like fucking hell like it, it was it was phenomenal right whereas an individual it's like this it, it doesn't matter like yeah okay i can do these different training protocols like i can do some like interval sprint training protocol and from that i get this like growth hormone response and it's like oh that's gonna you know burn fat because this individual saying that is like i took growth hormone and it fucking you know made my fat loss exponentially better right but in a, a physiological normal range again somewhat irrelevant you know now again in the case of obese people um, or obese individuals, like some of the stuff be- does become more relevant. Like if you do have hypothyroid, like it is going to be harder. Like it is still relevant. Like we could be talking here a difference of like 100, 200 calories per day in the difference of like, you know, how much you burn just at rest. And that's, that's going to be hard to deal with if you have to eat then less on top of that, you know, which again, generally negatively affects thyroid output when you're eating less. So it could be a, a compounding thing as well. Um, so that it obviously does become more relevant. However, as a general rule, I just wouldn't be looking at the hormone stuff. I'd just be like, right, what's the diet like? How, where are my calories at? How much am I moving per day? Is that all set? Great. I just have to deal with the metabolism that I have. And we discussed it in the last episode, but obese individuals generally have a faster metabolism or a higher metabolism is probably more accurate in terms of they actually burn more calories in general because they just have bigger bodies. So if they're moving around, like they take 10,000 steps per day, that's going to be burning more calories than if Gary takes 10,000 steps per day and he weighs like 60 kilos. Um, you know, so it's like, that's, that's obviously something that we think differently in the actual like general media presentation of obesity. It's like, Oh, they have a sluggish metabolism. They're just not burning that many calories. When in reality, it's like, no, they're actually burning through a fuckload of calories every single time they move because they are basically carrying around a weight vest all day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one thing that one thing that is an additional barrier barrier here when it comes to the discussion of calories in versus calories out is that very often what will happen is, you know, let's say a, a personal trainer who, you know, has 10 pounds to lose, okay? They'll go through a dieting process and, you know, they'll you know, they might experience some challenges along the way, but they lose those 10 pounds and that's it. They're kind of, you know, done for a while back to being in a surplus or at maintenance or whatever. However, when someone um, has obesity, let's say they have 60 pounds of excess weight that they'd like to lose. Okay. So they're 260 pounds at the moment and they're setting themselves a target. You know what? I want to get to 200 pounds or just slightly under, you know, it's not even about getting abs or anything like that. It's just, I want to get under that 200 pound mark. Okay. 60 pounds is a lot of weight and that's a big commitment. And this is one of the things that I think we lose sight of sometimes is that when we're talking about these very large quantities of weight that we want that someone wants to lose, we have to really extend the scope of our 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 goals effectively because when we th- when we plan for let's say a standard uh, 12 week fat loss phase, like you're you're not going to lose 60 pounds in 12 weeks without ap- digging really really hard. So we have to think about all the different periods of time within that for example, someone might come to you for coaching, let's say in July, and they want to lose 60 pounds and you kind of reverse engineer it. And you're thinking, you know what, 60 pounds, let's say a pound a week, if we're nice and slow with it, like we're talking a year's investment, let's say to, to get to that point. And we're going to have uh, the person's birthday in that period of time. We're going to have Christmas in that period of time. We're going to have Easter, all these different things within that period of time from when they start. So it's really important that 
someone starting off that process understands the expectations and also gives themselves a, br- a break every now and then because you know you you might want to take two weeks uh, to go on holidays and you're just going to actually stay at maintenance and dieting isn't the goal within that period of time and i think that sometimes we forget that with larger weight loss goals that people just try to take on far too much and try to sustain the rate of fat loss that someone uh, might be fine to do for eight to 12 weeks over the course of a year or something like that and that absolutely does work in some cases. However, in my experience from coaching, I think once someone has greater than like 15 kilos to lose, I'm rarely doing that in all one go without the person at least having a week or so um, where they're at maintenance or, you know, they're taking a break because, you know, life happens, things come up and um, it's only normal for you to to want to take a break every now and then. And, and there's, there's kind of non-specific diet fatigue that can accumulate, you know, it's not just hunger that might accumulate or low energy levels. It's also just this kind of stagnation, this sense of, Oh my God, am I going to have to live like this forever? And this is something we've touched on before as well, where people think that uh, what they have to do to lose weight is what they're going to have to do uh, to then maintain their end weight. And that's not necessarily the case because the reality is that, Um, when you're losing weight, obviously you're in a deficit, but when you're trying to maintain, you're at a higher level of calories. So you don't necessarily experience the same level of hunger. You're going to have higher energy levels. And I think if you can give someone a break, particularly when they're spending such an extended period of time in a deficit, I think it offers an opportunity just to remind you and to kind of motivate you a bit to say, oh, this is actually the long-term goal. The long-term goal isn't constant um, calorie deficit. It's actually to get back to maintenance. And I think that that's something just to appreciate for for those people with larger weight loss goals, which is obviously relevant to this conversation. 100%. Right. So we're going to get stuck into some, we'll call it practical stuff, right? That was basically a a huge caveat at the start. (laughs) Uh, Right. So some of the practical stuff, and I'm just going to throw out some little things that, you know, it is actually relatively intuitive, but they're actually, the the benefits of these are more compounded once you're, you actually have obesity. Right. And one of the things is, first of all, we touched on it earlier on, like meat is often forgotten about in this whole conversation. And as I just said, like, if you are an obese individual, you have a lot of weight on your body. Like meat is actually more beneficial for you and what i mean by meat is just you know your non-exercise activity thermogenesis your general moving around and what i mean by that overall is that you actually have an incredible tool because you can burn more calories by just doing some relatively low intensity uh, activity such as walking right easy on the joints easy on the body overall now obviously again if you weigh 600 pounds nothing is really easy on the joints but like you still get a phenomenal return on investment. And as we talk, talked about in the last episode, like I'm saying that's low intensity for an individual that weighs whatever, 400 pounds, whatever it is, right? Like that might be relatively high intensity if you were to actually measure their heart rate, like just walking down the street, their heart rate might be up at like 160, 170, whatever, right? Because for them, they are doing a huge amount of work. And as I said, you can use that to your advantage because if you set yourself a target of, I need to get 5,000 steps and you're an obese individual, you can rest assured that that 5,000 steps is more effective from a a calorie burning perspective than myself or Gary doing 10,000 steps, you know? So it's like you you are getting more bang from your book, right? So that's just one thing that I wanted to to put out there and caveat this, this, well, not caveat, to add to the whole conversation. And the second thing I wanted to say was like, 
one of the skills that will be most beneficial for you if you are an obese individual is to learn how to prepare more food at home right and as we talked about before when we talked about like the socioeconomic stuff related to the diet like that's obviously uh, an incredibly privileged thing to say in terms of like oh learn to cook food and prepare food at home like both myself and gary grew up in like lower ses environments so i know there are practical barriers to that i know it is definitely easier to go down and go like oh i'll just get a mcdonald's or a chipper in my case because chippers are fucking delicious um but like you this is a skill that is going to stay with you for the rest of your life like this is something that if you learn how to cook, if you learn how to prepare more food at home and you actually implement on that, like that is going to be a transformative skill, right? So even though, again, sounds incredibly intuitive, sounds incredibly like basic, like do not underestimate how much of a transformative skill learning to cook is, right? Like if you can cook yourself relatively good breakfast, lunches, and dinners, you know, that'll keep you on track with your, your, your overall health, your overall goals with regard to treating your obesity, whether that's from just a a purely health perspective, or if it is from a weight loss perspective, like that, like that's a transformative skill. Do you mind to add on that, Gary? No, sir. That's good. Fantastic. Right. There's a few other things uh, uh, as well. Um, And one of them is eat more fruit and veg. Right. And this is, again, sounds incredibly like, oh, like this is just your basic advice for everyone. But it, again, is a an added benefit for individuals that are obese. Now, again, there are socioeconomic uh, barriers to this in terms of like fruit and veg tends to go off um, and you have to be a bit more like conscious of that. And again, like you can come up with strategies and be like, oh, just buying it in the freezer. You know, you can get frozen veg or whatever some individuals don't have freezers, but like, I also hate those arguments where people are like, Oh, well, some people don't have cookers or they don't have microwaves or they don't have fucking whatever. I'm like, that's cool. We can get into these arguments and discussions of what people don't have. Some people don't have brains. Some people don't have legs. Some people don't have bodies. I'm like, we can keep going with this stuff. You know, it's like, this, this is, this is a, an infinite, somebody doesn't have loot. Yeah, it's, you know? stupid, like, so. it's like, you're going to have to come up with a solution in your individual situation with the individuals either you're talking to, or if you are like a policy level person, you are actually making policy for the country. You're going to have to come up with solutions for the different stratifications of different people in the environment that you're dealing with, you know? So that, that is like eating more fruit and veg so beneficial if you are someone that is dealing with obesity because again you're getting more satiety more bang from your book with lower calories you're getting more uh, filling food from that generally higher volume lower calorie food Um, and then also on top of that you're getting phenomenal health benefits like if you are talking about helping or treating your obesity if you will and from just a health perspective you're not like you're it's a weight neutral approach you just want to be healthier you don't want to change your body at all but you're like i just need to be healthier i have like higher cholesterol high blood pressure whatever other complications and you're just like I, I want to get better at eating and um, eating more fruit and veg is one of the key habits that you could do right and this is especially important from a an inflammation standpoint because you get all these antioxidants you get all these phytonutrients you get all these beneficial compounds and um, and then also generally high uh, or fruit and veg is tends to be higher fiber uh, or higher in fiber, I should say, which is really beneficial from a variety of perspectives, but especially for the obese individual, which have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And um, it's really beneficial for lowering cholesterol. So that's going to be a phenomenal tool in your arsenal. And again, it is a compounding effect because if you are obese and you have higher cholesterol, you get 
multitude more benefits than someone that's like like Gary or I, where it's like our cholesterol is in a, a relatively healthy range, and it's like, oh, cool, I lo- lowered mine by, you know, point one uh, millimolar or nanomolar, millimolar, isn't it? Um, like I lowered by point one. I'm like, great. Whereas if you were an obese individual, you get your fiber intake up from five grams to thirty five grams per day, and all of a sudden you're seeing this huge reduction. It's like that's a far more beneficial uh, effect than someone else that that's already eating like 20 grams, you know? So that is one of the things as well, really simple, intuitive in terms of like, this is just general fitness advice and general health, general diet advice, but it is more impactful if you are an obese individual, right? Do you have anything to add there, Gary? No, straightforward. Fantastic. The next thing then is reducing salt intake, right? Fairly straightforward, especially if you are already eating a lot of like processed foods, like your salt intake is probably relatively high um, and switching to a lower salt diet, first of all, encourages you to cut out that processed food, which then helps you eat more appropriate calories. Um, But also from a blood pressure perspective, like this is just a no brainer. Like if you are an individual that's dealing with, again, an increased risk of cardiovascular disease overall, in particular, high blood pressure, like reducing your salt intake again, it's just a no brainer, right? So that's, there's some real quick practical things um, that could be implemented for, you know, pretty much anyone. And the final one I wanted to touch on then is increasing your protein intake because protein is very satiating. It helps with recovery and it helps with muscle building. And especially from the muscle building perspective, like that is basically providing a, a sink for energy disposal overall. So that's only going to be more beneficial for you as an individual that needs that extra sink that gets better blood glucose regulation, better fatty acid regulation. Like it's just a beneficial thing for you. So increase your protein intake. Again, you don't need to be excessive with this. And um, some people like to, you know, set uh, protein targets based on body weight. If you are an obese individual, that might give you an absolutely reckless, um, <laughs> protein target like say you're just going for the you know generic recommendations of two grams uh, or we'll just say a gram per pound i was going to say per kilos two grams per kilo and we'll just say a gram per per pound right that's generally if you're an american or you're someone there like that's that's the number that's thrown out right so that's 2.2 grams per kilo if you weigh 400 pounds like that's a that's a that's a fucking lot of lot of protein to eat you know like yeah that's a lot right but you, you don't need to necessarily do eat that much you could go by lean mass Again, it's it's hard for uh, you to calculate your lean mass if you are, I don't know, 50% body weight or body fat. It's like, it's very hard. So what I always do in that case is, and this is just a really, really rough and ready uh, estimate, what you can do is get your height in centimeters, right? So I'm 195 centimeters and just eat 195 grams. So whatever your height in centimeters is, just eat that in grams per day of protein, right? So really, really simple tool. Is it foolproof? Fuck no. Is it perfect? Fuck no. But if you're dealing with an individual where you're like, I can't really base this on their their their, their body weight because you're going to get this recklessly high number and I can't really base it on like lean mass because I don't know how much lean mass they have because they have like an excess amount of adipose tissue. Like you basically have nothing to go on then except for guesswork. So I just use the height in centimeters. Really intuitive. Like it actually works out quite well. Like personally, right now, I eat about 200 grams of protein and my height is 195 centimeters. So it's not far off that, you know? Um, and I weigh roughly 95 kilos as well, in case anyone was wondering. Um, but so that's real intuitive. Joining again, quick fire stuff to add to that, Gary. No protein good. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Right. Now we actually get into some like uh 
nitty gritty meat and potatoes stuff for actual obese individuals that are, we'll, we'll call them the characteristics that are different from uh, a normal body weight individual, someone that doesn't have excess amounts of body fat, right? So obese individuals tend to burn more carbohydrates for fuel, just, you know, during activities, but also at rest. And this is generally measured through like non-protein uh, respiratory quotient, you can see this, um, like for example, we'll just give real ballpark rough numbers. Like say myself or Gary at rest, I'm burning 50% fat and 50% carbohydrates, the, the non-protein stuff that I'm eating, right? So that's the way my metabolism works. Again, I'm just picking these numbers out of my ass. Maybe an individual, if you got your um, <clears throat> respiratory quotient measured, like you would be a certain percentage of protein, a certain percentage of uh, fats, a certain percentage of carbs based on the activities that you do. Like, again, if you're an endurance athlete versus you're a strength and power athlete, like you're going to be, you know, burning different amounts. You're going to have upregulated different enzymes, different activity, etc. Um, but for obese individuals, they tend to burn more carbohydrates in general. Right. And from a mechanistic perspective, this makes sense because again, we think about it, they've got fatty acids, like they're being stored away. And it's easier to store fat in terms of like dietary fat. Like your body doesn't want to have to, we'll say, biotransform it into some other thing and then, you know, put it into something else. Um, it just wants to be like, all right, cool. You just ate some fats. I'm going to store those fats, those fatty acids anyway, right? Um, so you've already got this excess store of fats on your body. You've got this machinery upgraded or uh, upregulated, I should say, in terms of like fatty acid deposition, you, your, your body's primed to put that stuff away because, you know, you've been doing it to get to this obese level. Um, and then also it's like, you are a little bit insulin resistant. So, you know, carbohydrates are a little bit more free floating in the, uh, the bloodstream, right? So from a mechanistic perspective, it makes sense why obese individuals, you know, burn more carbohydrates at rest because their body is just better at storing fat because they have upregulated all the machinery for storing fat. Right. Um, now how do we actually deal with this? You could make so many mechanistic arguments for this stuff. Right. However, they all fall under the umbrella of the one thing that works for all of these is eat less calories. <laughs> so eating less is going to help with the stuff. So again, related back to that first thought that we had, the first thing that we introduced this whole thing with, again, you're going to need to eat less if you want to, you know, lose weight or if you want to improve your ability to handle these different nutrients, right? And just some other protocols that we'll touch on in a second, which potentially can shift things a little bit. Um, but one of the things that could also be beneficial for an individual that is obese, you could potentially make an argument for a, a lower carb approach purely from the perspective that it reduces, first of all, it, it gets blood glucose levels down, which is a beneficial thing, especially if you are someone that is potentially dealing with, um, like we'll call them metabolic consequences of obesity. Now, does it, does it cure that? Like, am I saying a low carb diet cures your diabetes or anything? Fuck no. But again, it might be something that allows you to stick to a diet or it may be something that allows you to get these numbers down back under control, see some progress with that and then get results. Right. But the main thing with this is, you can get some more glycogen depletion on a lower carb diet, especially if you combine it with exercise, which then again, starts upregulating this machinery. And then it starts, well, I was going to say curing your, your insulin resistance, but it helps with that, right? So that's one of the things it also helps with actually starting to uh, access the fatty acids that you have stored, right? Especially if you are an obese individual, like you have a little bit of a harder time accessing those stored 
fats because you you haven't needed to access them you haven't upregulated that machinery you haven't ever had to do it the only stuff that is upregulated is the storage stuff it's not the the access stuff right hence why you burn more carbohydrates at rest because that's just the way things are right and so it might make sense to do a little bit of a lower carb approach if you are obese i could make a, a mechanistic argument and having worked with individuals that are obese and then also individuals that have like pcos which is also something that can drive insulin resistance lower carb approaches tend to work a little bit better um, and that's from a multitude of things maybe it is the the mechanistic stuff but in my experience i think it is actually largely driven by it actually helps with adherence for these individuals because they get better blood sugar control they get better um like ultimately it makes them feel a little bit better and as a result they're able to stick to things a little bit better but what is your thoughts gary on a low carb approach for obese individuals yeah i think like you said like what i would agree with is the fact that um if someone does have uh, dysregulated blood glucose particularly if they're on that path to type 2 diabetes like low carbohydrate diets um are likely to lead to better blood glucose control um in terms of the actual weight loss outcomes themselves like i think on average like the low carbohydrate versus other types of diets probably doesn't make a difference um in my in my own experience um i'm not so sure i don't think i could honestly say that i've i've worked with uh, so many obese individuals on different types of diets to be able to say uh, which is exactly superior. Um, however, the one thing I can certainly stand by is that from my personal coaching experience, that is, is that giving the person the option to personalize with you the in terms of like what they actually feel best on, what keeps them most full, the foods they enjoy, etc., is almost always the best approach. So um, that's something I almost always end up doing. Um, but yeah, in terms of like, if you're an individual like who's trying to select a diet for yourself, just do keep that in mind. Keep in mind that I think like the consensus of the research overall is that, you know, there most people tend to, or the, on average, the, the specific specific type of diet doesn't matter in terms of uh, low carb versus low fat um but the dietary principles in terms of actually you know keeping higher protein intake and, and everything else patty has said is is certainly a good idea um so yeah that i'd i'd agree phenomenal um that is also something as well low carb diets like they tend to be different than what most people are doing so it tends to make people eat less overall. And it ultimately, again, leads to a calorie reduction, you know? Um, so that, that is one of the things. And actually one of the things I, I think I actually forgot to, to mention it and when I was giving my little quick tips for dealing with the, the diet and obesity. And one of the things that I would definitely recommend, and I'm sure you would as well, Gary, is like reducing saturated fat intake, right? Um, because that's just a, a no-brainer in terms of helping with LDL. And again, if you are a, a population that is at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, that just makes sense, you know? And again, the, the recommendation is less than 10% of calories. I believe that is it's 10 to 15%. You know, that's what I generally recommend, but I'm generally talking to a, a healthy fit population that, you know, eats their fruit and veg so they can probably get away with higher. And, um, but I do know in the research that like getting it below like 7% is, you know, 
pretty much uh, phenomenal for LDL, you know? So it's like, that is something that I would definitely consider. And the reason I bring it up here again is because when you talk about low carb diets, the, the Mac daddy of them all in terms of low carb dieting is the, the ketogenic diet, which you often see recommended for obese individuals that, you know, are trying to either get a handle on their health or get a handle on their weight. And they're like, oh yeah, look, you're going to have to cut out all carbs, no carbs, zero, absolutely zero. Well, that's not true. Most ketogenic diets allow you to have like 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates, um, usually in the form of like non or non starchy stuff in terms of like, you know, fibers, you can eat like, you know, fruits and veggies, well, maybe not fruit, but veg anyway. Um, and some people are able to like, you know, eat like 200 grams of carbs and still stay in ketosis, yeah. which is, which is kind of fucked up when you think about it. Um, cause you might actually be in ketosis without even fucking knowing about it. Um, just as a general thing, um, depending on your overall situation. But anyway, look, that's the story for another day. Um, yeah, like a, a ketogenic diet, I'm just not a fan for obese individuals. First of all, it's a generally a non-sustainable diet. Now that's perfectly fine if we're using it as an intervention. However, like if you think about the classic way most people do uh, ketogenic diets, it's like they're usually higher in saturated fat, which is just not beneficial from an individual perspective or an individual's perspective that are dealing with like high incidences of like cardiovascular disease. And like, that's just, it's just not a beneficial thing for this population. Right. And then also I would just make a very strong argument uh, against bringing in something that is so we'll call it metabolically disruptive uh, for a population that is already dealing with metabolic abnormalities. Right. Like there is obviously an increased risk of like uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, again, potentially the risks are overblown in just a, uh, an average population however if you are someone that is obese and you're dealing with potential diabetic issues i'm like this is just not something that we need to do that we need to be I- introducing into the overall like system here and um, when we have far more effective tools well i should, shouldn't say far more effective we have just as effective tools that don't come with the the risk associated with this and again this goes back to thinking about the diet um, as something that is not inherently, you know, um, risk-free. Like it is something, it is an intervention and it is something that as a result of it being an intervention, you have to think more clearly about what you're actually doing, what you're actually implementing. I'm still here. Don't worry. My camera just turned off for a second, no but yes, <laughs> yes. Um, in terms of ketogenic diet, like, yeah, it's not something I'm, I don't know when the last time I told a client to go keto was, to be honest, it's just, it's just such a big step from normal dietary practices. And while certain people will get fantastic results, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's just such a big step for at least, you know, here in Ireland, in terms of like what we normally eat, like the typical diet, if you ask, if you were to ask a person on the street, like, I'm not going to take someone's spuds away from them. Like, I'm not taking your porridge away from you in the morning. You know, I, I'm not going to deprive you of an apple or a banana at lunch. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's just such a big step. And, and also, like, you're cutting out so many foods that have potential health benefits and the potential to contribute to satiety and gut health and brain health and like so many different things that to take such an extreme step just um seems mostly unnecessary unless you know for sure that like 
this absolutely makes a big difference for me better than any other diet I've ever tried. In that case, you know, hard to argue with. And you can, you can absolutely try to set up a ketogenic diet in a healthier way, like by eating more kind of leafy greens and stuff, for example, uh, the lower carbohydrate vegetables, um, even including some berries, um, especially if you're active, as Patty said, you'll get away with uh, some carbohydrates in the diet at least. Um, and then also, you know, trying to get, you know, more salmon and olive oil, et cetera, rather than just doing what a lot of people do and load up with bacon and butter, um, on keto diets. So, so yeah, it, it, go ahead. Thanks. Great. Yeah. It does taste great, but yeah, it, it, it can be done in a more healthful manner. And I think that if someone uh, just finds that to be the absolute best diet for them, more power to you, but just be thoughtful as to how you put it together, um, is what I would say. hundred percent. I agree with you, Gary as always now that's basically it right except for there's a, a we'll call them a, like a class of interventions which basically aim to do a variety of things through somewhat similar mechanisms and dubious for some of them but more supported for other ones um, and this is basically like we said earlier on like if you were an individual that is basically burning more um, carbohydrates at rest and you're not actually accessing the fats that are stored on your body or in your body and um, depending um, you could make a strong argument for some sort of strategic fasting right and there's a, a huge uh, variety in the ways that you can actually implement this and i'm going to just touch on the four generally you know proposed me- or not mechanisms the generally proposed dieting styles and um, taking this into account and um, but ultimately again it comes down to that first thing we talked about which was calorie balance um that's what's working for all of these now there are potential other benefits to this which we've talked about before because one of the ton- one of the diets that i'm going to mention here is like an 800 calorie diet which as we talked about before when we talked about the twin cycles hypothesis like this could have benefits from uh uh uh, removal of ectopic fat from like the liver and stuff, which again is you know beneficial, but we'll, we'll touch on that in a second, right? So there's four main kind of diets that are recommended for obese individuals. And I know because I literally did about two hours of Google researching and saw what was generally recommended. And this is both from, uh, you know, just on the interwebs in general, but then also from like a, a variety of um, health uh, government sites and stuff you know like these are mentioned on them so i'm, I'm going to cover these ones right so the first one is just a, a, an actual zero calorie diet right and that might seem extreme and it is and it's not actually zero calorie in terms of you don't actually eat nothing like generally this is done with uh, some sort of support in terms of like you are still getting some like vitamins minerals salts and stuff you know and um, but that is one intervention right now it's less recommended than the other ones, but it is, it is one, right? The other one then is uh, less than 800 calorie per day diet. And it's got a lot of, uh, I'm going to say blowback. Uh, was it last year or the year before when the NHS yeah. was talking about it? Right. And we'll, we'll get into it in a second, but like it, it is a potentially very beneficial intervention for obese individuals. Right. The next one then is like a five, two diet or some variation of that. And what I mean by that is the basic premise is, on a seven day week, you eat five of those days and you don't eat on two of those days, or you eat a very low uh, calorie intake on two of those days. You know, basically you're fasting for two days per week, right? They don't have to be consecutive. They can be, um, but generally people do them like, you know, I'll fast on a Wednesday and a Saturday or something, you know? Um, And then we have uh, intermittent fasting, which is 
what's generally referred to as intermittent fasting but in really in reality it's actually just time restricted eating and um, but i'll still call it intermittent fasting because that's what most people call it anyway even though like the five two diet is more actually aligned with what intermittent fasting is like you're intermittently fasting and um, whereas time restricted feeding or time restricted eating um, is just you have set a time between which you eat you know so then one that most people are familiar with is like a, a 16 8 style diet where they don't eat for 16 hours of the day and they eat for eight hours per day and this has got a, a lot of hype in the the fitness realm because it generally allows people to stick to their diets a little bit easier because they basically like skip breakfast and they only eat from like lunchtime onwards so as a result of that like they don't think about food before midday or whatever however whenever they actually start eating right so it gets a lot of hype in the health and fitness realm so you might be thinking as an obese individual oh this is something that would be beneficial but anyway gary what are your thoughts on these kind of fasting um or like low calorie approaches overall given those four kind of types yeah i think that can absolutely work you know i mean the like some people can take it to a an absolute extreme um in terms of just totally going for prolonged fasting like fasting for a couple of weeks at a time even some people do that um our friend mark fasted for a week last year and he was already lean which is very difficult to do um but yeah there's 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 definitely a opportunity for or the potential for these things to be useful and i've had some clients over time who have had great success with different um types of uh fasting or intermittent caloric restriction approaches um and in particular i think the one day per week uh, fasting is is something that I've I've had success with uh, because I think that a like five two uh, approach for example where you don't eat twice per week or eat very low calories twice per week um, that's hard for people who are let's say training or working a job uh, midweek because it's kind of hard to choose which days you fast whereas I think that if uh, if you're just fasting one day per week. It's practical because, you know, you might say, oh, Wednesday is my busiest day in work. I actually don't find I'm hungry or the opposite. It might be that on a Saturday, I have, you know, just jobs to do, but, you know, I'm not that busy and I'm, I'm not going to eat. Or that, that just might suit you better, but then you might want to have your Sunday dinner. So that's something I've had success with. I haven't had any clients really do more prolonged fasting, like over a number of weeks, but the one day per week thing has worked because it does obviously just create that additional calorie deficit that reduces the burden of caloric restriction on the other days of the week. So that's definitely an option. And, and more consistently, I've had clients for sure who have specific cutoffs in terms of their eating window, whether that be in the morning or whether that be in uh, the evening. I generally find that if we can, if I can get someone to develop the habit of cutting off their eating window in the evening a bit earlier and they get really consistent with that, that works super well. And that's something that's more behavioral than anything else. And I find the same for myself because when I rack up calories, it's generally going to be in the evening because if I'm winding down or you sit down, I don't know, to watch a bit of Netflix or you're after your training and you're Wait, hold starving. On a hold on a second. Are you relaxing in the evenings? No, I'm working. Oh, good. What do you think I'm doing right now? Sunday evening. Here we are recording a podcast. But, you know, it's, it's those evening times for many people when they kind of finish up and start to wind down that you'll start to rack up calories. And you'd be surprised how it affects your psychology once you kind of get into the habit of 
oh no, like I've just, I have my dinner then I have a little snack and I'm, I'm done eating at seven and I just don't eat again. That's just normal. I have a cup of tea and that's it. It's not to say that there needs to be a hard cutoff or that you can't if you like eating in the evening. But I definitely find that when people get into that habit, it really helps from a, a behavioral perspective because it means that then what they do is they're they're not doing this this behavior that can become a bit pathological where people just save up all their calories for the evening and it's very easy to overeat then because they say to themselves oh i cut my calories off in the evening so you know what i'm going to do i'm going to start having a larger breakfast and then because they're not eating in the evening they're hungrier in the morning they're more fueled throughout the day and they don't have those same cravings even going into the evening and i think it's a really nice way of setting up your diet if it suits you personally you know and from a practical perspective on that as well, like if you are an obese individual and you're, you're trying to use an intervention like this, what can happen is it can actually exacerbate your sleep apnea. Like if you're dealing with sleep apnea, mm-hmm. um, it can actually make it worse, right? So you then have worse sleep um, and it, just eating more calories before you go to bed can, for some individuals, make their sleep worse. Like you can just measure it on some sort of app or whatever. Like for some individuals, it makes their sleep worse. For me, I could literally eat nothing or I could eat before bed. It doesn't seem to affect me. I know for you, Gary, it does have a little bit more of an effect. So like this is, again, going back to the start of the the podcast, like this is, uh, uh, you have to look at you as an individual. You have to start dealing with the stuff that you are dealing with um, uh, in your response to the diet. And you have to take that into account, which again, makes this stuff incredibly hard. But again, if you are eating before bed, and it's exacerbating your sleep apnea, it's making it worse. Like you're now going to be tired going into the next day. You know, now you have even worse uh, blood sugar regulation. All of those downstream stuff uh, is occurring as a result of that poorer sleep. And again, it's making your diet less effective because you are actually less able to adhere to it, which then goes against our fundamental precept that we went through at the very start of the episode, which is it all comes back to calories. That's it. It's calories in, calories out simple but not easy exactly now i just want you to touch on the the potential here for the 800 calorie diet because this was again something that like in the nhs and stuff they got a bit of flack for it for trying to help with uh if i could speak obesity um and there's a number of things with that especially in the context of uh obese individuals dealing with uh like diabetes complications or you know issues around there and we have touched on it in previous episodes so you don't need to do a deep dive on this but give us the basic premise in terms of like why uh, a lower calorie approach would potentially be effective or more effective for an individual dealing with obesity in terms of health you know forget about the, the fat loss like well it, it is obviously the mechanism is fat loss as well but forget about the actual like weight loss overall um what what's going on there like why would a zero calorie diet i was going to say if calories were matched but that's actually fucking impossible but anyway um why would a zero calorie diet be potentially good for uh, an individual that is obese why would a, a less than 800 calorie diet potentially be good for an individual that is obese and then also this is somewhat speculative and hypothesizing but give me your thoughts in terms of whether you are actually getting any of those benefits if you do something like a 5-2 diet or you do something like intermittent fasting, like are you still getting that kind of pulling of fats from these different areas? Yeah, so like when you look at the evidence um, related to the very low calorie diets for diabetes remission, for example, 
the primary determinant um, of uh, the return of the normal blood glucose control and beta cell function uh, seems to be the magnitude of weight loss effectively. So ultimately, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the fact that it, it, it's a very low calorie diet as such, but rather that that just facilitates um, more fat loss over a given period of time. And I think that in the case of type 2 diabetes, what you have to remember is that this actually is a disease that can be progressive and can lead to fairly, you know, not very nice outcomes in terms of uh, diabetic foot and eye complications and heart disease risk, etc. Yeah, it's time so the, sensitive. Exactly. It is time sensitive. And also the fact that the like beta cell dysfunction is is and can be progressive so that so basically if you can restore it quicker um in a quicker period of time you know time is money time is beta cell function there you know so there's there's something to the the time component and also the, the motivation component and i mean the motivation for aggressive intervention on the part of the medical profession or healthcare professional but also the motivation to actually get this under control by the individual because when there's more sinister consequences um, associated with a, with a given state, then very clearly you'd want to be a little bit more aggressive in addressing that, you know? So I think that uh, as, as the research stands at this point in time, the primary uh, benefit of the very low calorie diets seem to, again, just be related to uh, weight loss once again. And, and ultimately, if you were to take a slower approach, I would imagine uh, that a, a very subtle calorie deficit for a longer period of time provided the same amount of weight loss as achieved would produce um, similar outcomes. But obviously it's not a fair comparison because the time parameter again relates to beta cell function, the stage of disease, et cetera. So yeah, overall, I just think that understanding that it is ultimately caloric restriction and subsequent weight loss that are the, the really big variables here, I think that's empowering because it means that as an individual with obesity, because we're not specifically talking about type two diabetes here as an individual with obesity, you can begin to reduce your risk of, of various uh, health complications and the, those complications you may be dealing with right now, such as high blood pressure, um, insulin resistance, etc. You can begin to, to reverse those and to improve those through a more gradual weight loss. If that's something you need to get under control, it might even be that initially you just stay around maintenance and adopt a weight neutral approach and then be more aggressive maybe with the deficit. Um, there's, there's many different ways to start to make improvements. And ultimately the magnitude of weight loss is the primary determinant really along of, along with, of course, um, you know, dietary quality and all those sorts of things of the health improvements that we see uh, with caloric restriction. So I'm not so sure that people need to actually have a, you know, two day period without any food to get additional benefits or anything. Um, but yeah, that, that'd be my, my general perspective. I think that you can get the benefits uh, regardless once you, you find a way to, to restrict calories consistently. Yeah. Like I think this is ultimately one of those things where it's like, again, it just comes back to calories. <laughs> um, but it is one of those things where like you could make a, a strong argument that, okay, like you do get these small additional benefits. If you didn't eat for a period of time, it, you know, preferentially targets, you know, fat stored ectopically preferentially targets fat. That's like, you know, stored around the organs. However, like I don't actually know from maybe you've read it. Maybe you haven't. I don't know if there is actually any research that shows that, you know, I don't know if there's any research that goes, here's an individual 
dieting on 2000 calories and they eat three meals per day spread out 8 a.m till fucking 8 p.m at night right versus this other individual that spreads out their meals from 2 p.m till 8 p.m you know they have like a time restricted feeding window that's that's what they do right like i don't think because first of all, it would have to be done in twins because obviously we're all genetically different. We all store fat, et cetera. Like, and they'd have to do all the same stuff, you know? Um, like I don't think there is research to suggest that if you do have periods of time where you're not eating, you are getting preferential fat loss from certain areas. You know, like if you did have that individual that had their meals spaced out that breakfast, lunch, dinner uh, type, like, I don't know if that's going to be like, oh, they took more fat from their, their love handles. Whereas the individual that was time restricted feeding, like they took more fat from their liver, you know, like, I don't know if we have that research, it's fine to hypothesize and, you know, make a mechanistic argument for, uh, you can make again, like, oh, well, like, you know, in, when you're in starvation mode, and I put that in inverted commas uh, for anyone listening, uh, when you're in this like kind of starvation mode where, you know, you're not eating anything, you know, potentially different mechanisms, different um, like uh, genes are turned on that go, okay, we need to preferentially use up the fat that has been stored, you know, inside the abdomen versus outside. Like you could make mechanistic arguments. You could do the exact opposite as well. You could be like, oh, that's the fat that you want to preserve until the very end when you're in this kind of like, no food environment so you're going to lose fat preferentially on the periphery of the body versus the inside of the body so it's like you can make all these mechanistic arguments and i don't think i i haven't read it anyway i don't think we have the research to fully answer that that question but it is interesting to think about yeah and i mean like there's 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 so many different moving parts really like because as well like if you do if we did make the case let's say that oh no you you want to just uh, lose the fat as fast as possible. Like there was, there's always, there's always risks at every, you know, end of the spectrum. And as you begin to lose weight more rapidly, you also increase risk of other complications. Like for example, one, one of the things that doesn't get discussed very often in the fitness industry is that as you increase um, your rate of weight loss, let's say you're also increasing the rate of fat metabolism and the rate that fat has to be broken down. And all that has to is, is flux uh, through the liver and the gallbladder. And it does increase um, risk of uh, cholecystitis as well, the development of gallstones and then cholecystitis, which can be, you know, a, a fairly not nice again, complication. So there's all these different things um to, to weigh up. And ultimately that's why, you know, we're not trying to give you the one, the one weird trick because it ultimately does keep coming back to, you need to find a way to restrict calories consistently. And while we would love to sit here and give you all the mechanistic hypothesizing about the biochemical pathways and all this sort of stuff, all very interesting, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's calories in calories out you know i'm sorry like and this is the thing as well like i fuck like i literally did a degree in biochemistry because i was like this stuff is fucking interesting i'm like i, I just wish it wasn't so simple because i'd love to if we could have three hours was, I was, I was like it'd be so fucking handy if it was like oh no look i just I, krebs cycle tca cycle i'm like this is I, i've got this little thing and like this is this is the it explains everything we can just you know supplement with this little thing it just revs up the engine revs up that cycle and boom it's all fucking phenomenal but like there just isn't like, again, like I could literally come on here and be like ketogenic diets are absolutely woeful for people that have lots of weight to lose because 
when you are burning that, through that much amount of fat, uh, you like are trying to lose weight and you're also increasing fatty acid oxidation uh, or beta oxidation, uh, fatty acid mobilization, you're basically overloading the TCA cycle. And unless you have enough uh, oxaloacetate from elsewhere in the diet, you're going to basically be in a position where you shut off your metabolism, you know, like you shut down the TCA cycle. Like that is factual right? That does happen. However, it's just fucking not relevant <laughs> for, for most people, right? And also, it's a really easy fix. Like, I could be like, I actually have this one weird trick that'll actually solve that completely. And, you know, it'll actually allow you to continue burning fat while also be at this, you know, increased fatty, fat burning rate, right? Like, I could sell you that and be like, you just need to join my course. You just need to find out that trick there. You know, mm-hmm. the trick is literally just to eat some carbohydrates, to eat some sort of source of that oxaloacetate that actually allows, like, they always say that like fat burns in the flame of carbohydrates. And that that's why. Um, so it's like, I could, if I was a scumbag, I could definitely make up all this fucking arguments. And that's why people do it because it is easy to sell this stuff when in reality, it all comes back to calories. <laughs> I wish it didn't. I wish there was a weird trick because me and Gary would be sipping my ties on some fucking beach in Bali or somewhere, you know? <laughs> but we're not. We're sitting in Ireland when it's two degrees outside and not sipping my ties. But anyway, look, I actually don't think I have much else to say in terms of the overall diet. It basically comes back to we need to find a way for you as an individual to eat less calories and move a little bit more. And I wish it wasn't that fucking simple. And if it is that simple, which I think it is, and I would think all the research would support it, I wish there was actually a simpler way to actually put that into practice rather than, oh, yeah, you just need to find a way to uh, (laughs) eat eat less calories and move more. I wish there was like, oh, no, this is actually the the perfect diet that allows you to do that across the board. Everyone works with this diet. And also these are the policy interventions that a government can implement to allow that to happen. You know, I'm like, I wish there was a better way, but unfortunately there isn't. That's it, man. Yes. Now, where can people find us? Give us the old outro. Well, if you would like to be coached by us, where we will email you and say, eat less, move more. <laughs> That's, our no, entire That's our entire coaching modality. That's it. Done. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, as we've mentioned in this podcast, it's, it's difficult. Okay. While it is simple, it is, it is, it's simple to state difficult um, to adhere mm-hmm. to and to put it into practice. But that's what we help people with, you know, and um, we help people with that literally every day of the week. Um, all of us at triage, that's what we do. Uh, so if you need help with uh, trying to, you know, get your diet in order, trying to find, you know, exercise that works well for you and you want to actually commit to, you know, getting weight loss that's going to be sustainable, that's ultimately, you know, what we do. And don't just take my word for it. You know, if you look at the testimonials we post in our social media, it's almost everyone is like, you know, I feel like I have the tools to stay with me going forward. And this has been, you know, I, I'm a, I've escaped from the crash diets, blah, blah. Like that, that's, that's why we post testimonials to show that, you know, it, we're not just saying that that's what we try to put into practice. So yeah, if you are interested, you know, we do have spaces available, um, limited spaces, I may say at this point in time. Um, but yes, space is available. Uh, so if you're interested, get in touch. If you're a coach yourself, we do have an education platform called the Coaches Corner, which you can subscribe to. We also are putting out a lot of content on our social media. So do follow along there at Triage Method on Instagram. 
as well as our own Instagrams, um, myself, Skinny Guys, Paddy, the real Paddy Farrell, and Brian of Brian O'Hangus. Um, follow us and you'll get additional free content there. We also have a newsletter that goes out every week. So the Triage Method newsletter, which you can subscribe to and get some additional content there as well, as well as recommendations of other uh, content that we've come across that we think might be helpful for you. Um, and other than that, of course, guys, share the podcast if you're... Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, share it on your story, you know, let us know what you're enjoying. Um, let other people know about the podcast. It's always uh, nice to see people sharing it. And yeah, if you've got any questions uh, or topics for the podcast in future, you're of course uh, welcome to give us suggestions. And yeah, if you want to, you know, ask us questions, otherwise you can also reach out to us on social media. Generally, we always get back to people. So don't be afraid to get in touch. Or they could join the free Facebook group and ask questions. Yes. Free Facebook group do that easy work <clears throat> yeah i've nothing else to add i hope the week ahead is phenomenal like again we could have got hit by an asteroid and ireland could be fucking completely obliterated so god who knows um yeah enjoy your week guys Bye, folks. <laughs>